Hey, Beth. Hey, Jenna. How are you? Amazing. Really? Praise the Lord. Wow, it's been so long. I know. I'm so happy to be here. So happy. Well, you've been here. I've been sitting in this chair for two hours, actually. Yeah. But I'm glad that you're now here. I am here. Well, I'm very much excited and grateful because this past weekend, we had the amazing Father Agustino Torres from the CFRs share with us his wisdom. It's actually the church's wisdom. Yeah. He like succinctly shared the church's 2,000 years of wisdom with us. I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. It was so succinct. I can't believe everything that he taught in such a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. He gave a whole framework for the church's social teaching and what the church has to say about race and racism. I thought it was beautiful. And then he was so generous to do really a, a lengthy, in-depth Q&A with UNL. Yeah. So we're actually going to split it into two parts. So this first part will just be that first, almost an hour long, I think, if not over an hour long, of him unwrapping Catholic social teaching on the dignity of the human person. Yeah, I was going to say like downloading. Yeah. It's like we get all of his formation mm-hmm. distilled into one hour. Yeah. It's a, a great use of an hour for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So this is part one. It is with Father Agustino, Nell O'Leary, our amazing managing editor and dear friend, mm-hmm. and me. It was a treat. I hope you enjoy it and you learn as much as we did. Hopefully you learn more than I did because sometimes my brain just doesn't compute things. <laughs> you know? I do. I get it. <laughs> You're not alone. You could always go back and listen again. That's why we're sharing it here on the podcast. Totally. And if you want to share it with friends, share the podcast link. It's also on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's on our website. We just want to make it easy for you, my friend. All right. We are the church. Let's roll. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Jenna Gizar, and I am so excited to be with you today, joined by my wonderful, good friend, Nell O'Leary. And we're also joined by Father Agustino Torres. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good. Oh, good. Good. Um, so if this is your first time coming Stumbling along, blessed is she. I just want to welcome you um, to listening and to joining us. Uh, Blessed is she is an apostolate that is focused on a couple of things, and that is prayer and community. And um, so we just want to dive into the Lord's heart in our every day, and we invite you to come along with us um, every single day. But especially today, we're going to be focusing on racism and Catholic social teaching, and we're going to be hearing from Father Agustino on Um, just our church and uh, her rich teachings and um, just learn and pray together. So please, if you are following along with us on YouTube, leave any and all questions. Father is here to answer questions for us. Um, If you have questions kind of as he's, as he's talking and teaching us, um, feel free to leave them in the comments and we'll get to them once he's done um, talking. So Nell, I'm going to pass it off to you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Jenna. So I get to work alongside Jenna every day, you guys. I'm really spoiled. I'm the managing editor here at Bust Is She. I run our writing team. I help produce all of our books, our products. Um, But I've also had the incredible pleasure of speaking alongside this phenomenal priest, Father Agustino Torres, who's here with us today uh, as a true gift. He's a friend. He's an incredible father. And he's just 
truly someone I learned so much from, and I'm thrilled he gets to be here with us. So a little background on Father Agostino. I'm going to sing your praises, Father, so get ready. He's a Franciscan Friar Renewal, or a CFR, hence the awesome outfit, the habit. Mm -hmm. All right, show us the hood. There we go. That hood can fit like a Bible, a journal, weaponry, anything you need. The hood has it. <laughs> He's a CFR. They're, they're based in the Bronx, founded in the 80s, and they have over 100 um, brothers and priests as part of their organization. Their charism is caring for the poor in evangelization. They're about as hardcore as it gets. They are truly living out the gospel and the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So Father is the itinerant speaker. He, he speaks to over 25,000 youth in person and millions online every year. He's always uh, at like SLS and all the conferences that we all hope to, to tune in to hear him from. But he's also the president and founder of another organization called Corazon Puro, which means pure heart. And it's it, there in the Bronx and focuses on building leaders from the community to help promote the culture of life. Uh, basically, after I met Father, I decided I was hoping that I would get to be a CFR because who doesn't want to spend time with this incredible order um, and these these amazing priests who inspire us each and every day? Was that embarrassing enough, Father? How was that? Well, I'm going to embarrass you. Uh, Mel oh, no. kind of <laughs> kept us friars fed during the uh, quarantine when no, we, we, we live on donations and donations stopped coming. And so Nell just like uh, made made sure that we were fed. So thank you. If, even though you could not uh, join the CFRs, we're very happy that you uh, kept kept us uh, um, going during those years. So ha, right back at you. <laughs> Thanks, Father. Thank you so much for being here and for speaking with us. We're just thrilled to have you. Mercy, I am I am really touched and moved. I'm I'm so very grateful. If I could just say uh, from the get go, um, um, thank you. Thank you. I was reflecting as I was preparing um, some notes, I was just reflecting how awesome women are. <laughs> so just so great. I, people were asking me like, oh, are you, wh what talk do you have? I'm like, oh, it's, it's with uh, Blessed is She. And like, oh, okay. Like women are awesome. Thanks be to God for this, for this, this group of women. And I understand there's a couple guys that, that follow. No, no shame in your game. Um, because where would we be without you? I mean, not just biologically, because like we all were born of a woman, but like your prayer, your devotion, your love, your sincerity, just the fact that you're, you're bringing this talk uh, onto this forum and asking some of these tough questions comes, I think, from the sincerity of your heart to want to really hear what's happening, hear what the church has to say about this and know how to live your life, know how to form your families. And so thank you. Thank you. Uh, and if and if it's not that well, hopefully it can be that. Um, but I'm very grateful uh, for for this opportunity. Um, so, uh, by way of of, of um, an introductory statement, I'm I'm going to go through some basic principles of Catholic social teaching so that we can have like a foundation on which to to build uh, the other things that that we need to be talking about today and how it applies today. But definitely, I'm not sure exactly how or if we can, uh, if somebody does have a question. I know that there's some questions that have already been asked. Um, not to be afraid. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even say uh, don't be afraid to ask very, very uh, complicated philosophical questions that, that could be out there um, that maybe uh, has, you've, you've, you've uh, struggled to find an, an answer. I'm going to do my best. Um, and, uh, and I don't know a couple of things. What's, what's my cred? Well, I'm the one that teaches the brothers 
um, the the class on our work with the poor, which is which has a lot of the the social doctrine of the church mixed in with it, but it's actually how we apply it in our the CFRs. We have a charism of work with the poor and evangelization. So, like my I guess uh, my my job in that class is to give the brothers the principles they need to live out our charism in our life of working with the poor. You might think that it's like, well, you just make sandwiches or you just like, you need to walk with it. Actually, man, sometimes you have some situations where you're like, I don't know what to do here <laughs> because this is a little complicated, but the church, we, we have such a treasure in the teachings of the church um, that, uh, that, uh, can help us and can help us even right now. So by way of introduction, obviously, beginning with, with scripture, um, Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter five, verse three uh, said, blessed are the poor in spirit for they, um, for they shall inherit, well, hold on, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of, of, of God, sorry. <laughs> and also in Luke, um, there's another version of, of the Beatitudes, uh, Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So um, the fact that Jesus is, is saying blessed are the poor bears some, some uh, reflection. It's the very first of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, um, for those who, who may, are, are not well acquainted, it's like, it's like the charter of Christianity. Um, it's almost like our constitution, if you will. Uh, it's like it's like this is what we're we're about. It's not necessarily a creed. Like this is what we believe. It's like this is how we're we're living what we believe. Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Um, blessed, 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 blessed. But but uh, there's a slight distinction that uh, when we when we peer a little bit more into the original um, Greek and the original meaning. Uh, can help us understand what God is asking us to do. So beginning with Matthew, there's a slight difference. Blessed are you poor in spirit. Like, what does that mean? Like, you know, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is like like when you're going through like spiritual aridity or you're feeling kind of down? No, actually, this is kind of like a, it's a Hebrewism. So um, I'm, I'm bilingual. And, and sometimes the words in, in English come out when I'm speaking Spanish. Sometimes the words in Spanish come out when I'm speaking English. And sometimes I just make the word in Spanish an English word because it just fits better. Well, actually, this is what the, um, some of the, the scripture writers did because they, were, they came from a Hebrew culture, but a Greek-speaking world. So blessed are the poor in spirit is actually a Hebrewism. Um, that goes back to a very deep theme in the Old Testament. And the word that they're trying to, to translate is uh, the Hebrew anuim, anawim, which means the little ones, or can also be translated the poor in spirit. Um, and there's this whole theme in the Old Testament of God taking care of the anawim. Anawim could be the meek, the poor, the humble, the little ones, the faithful. And that's, that's another important thing. Um, that they were the ones that had total and complete dependence on God. And, and they, they knew God was going to take care of them. I don't know, um, I don't know what you, you all's experience of speaking to holy people is, but some of the holiest people I've ever met in my life are those who are poor. Hello, I'm a Franciscan. Um, St. Francis kind of uh, connected uh, poverty 
uh, with with as a, as a means to um, to to bend to depend on nothing else but God. Uh, ultimately, um, even Saint John of the Cross in the Carmelite tradition, in his ascent to Mount Carmel, you know, he has all these. Uh, he, he he drew a picture. Uh, I like books with pictures. Um, he he drew a picture of a mountain and like you know all these paths leading up the mountain, the ascent to Mount Carmel, all these virtues. You know, this is the way to holiness. And then in the middle like a super highway that would lead you to holiness, bypassing all these other things, just like the shortcut is this one road. And he just said, nada, which is Spanish for nothing. Like if you want to just like go straight to the top, like on a rocket ship, have nothing, not a Buddhist nothing to make a distinction, but a very Christian, a very Christ centered, having nothing, but having everything having a complete dependence on God. And so that's why I'm very grateful to people like Nell who we depended on you guys because we didn't know where our food was going to come from during quarantine. Thanks be to God. So this is like one of the ways that we try to live it, obviously not like the way St. John of the Cross was living it, but, um, but this is a theme that's very strong in scripture, complete dependence on God. And so like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, it kind of makes sense, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, and God will take care of them. This is scriptural. This is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're going to get it all. But, but we have to contrast this with uh, what it says in the gospel of Luke. Now, remember, Luke was speaking to a predominantly Greek cultured Christian. A lot of the uh, converts from paganism, from whateverism, uh, that had a Hellenic culture they didn't know, they didn't have these Hebrewisms, right? And so the word that he used in the original Greek when he said, blessed are you who are poor, the Greek word is tokoi. And honestly, it, it's, it's probably better translated like the destitute, like the wretchedly poor. And this for the Greek mind would have been shocking. What? No, no, no. The, 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 the gods bestow blessings upon those who are most godlike and, and, um, and, and, and wealth and, and all these, these things uh, were, were a sign of, of goodness and, and, and destitution. And, and uh, it, was like, it was like a sign of a curse, um, as it is even today, I guess. Uh, but this word tokoi um, is like uh, poverty, like Oh my gosh, like shocking. I can't believe people are living this way type of poor. So when St. Luke in chapter six says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. It was just like, what, what are you talking about? But Luke has a contrast because after he goes through a couple of blessings, he has a woe, woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh now. So like, there's like a, a, a distinction that's being made. It's like, you know, if you put your mind and your heart just on these riches, you're missing the point. And this is a theme, as many of you are very well aware, in the Gospel of Luke, that's very clear. The Good Samaritan, the, um, the, uh, the, the prodigal son, all, a number of parables, uh, uh, the uh, rich man and Lazarus. It's like saying like, hey, guys, you... you you, you can't just be focused on material things because there's something more. Now, from this, the church kind of establishes a basis of how we are meant to live in society 
um, so that we can be poor in spirit, but at the same time um, confront and and um, and and try to remedy some of these situations of destitution that the Lord, by definition, is asking us to change. Uh, just so that you know, um, when Saint Paul is is uh, presenting the gospel that he has presented to the um, to the Gentiles, he is asked. Uh, he's given the blessing. He goes to Jerusalem, like supposedly the first council of Jerusalem. And in second Galatians, and I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter two, uh, he kind of gives like a point by point. He says that, and that, recognizing the grace that I had been given, James, Stephus, or, or Peter, our first Pope, and John, those reputed to be the pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right, this is St. Paul, the right, the right hand of fellowship so that we should go to Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning that the Jew is the Jews. They only asked us to be mindful of the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this is very, very significant because it shows that from the beginning of the, 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 the preaching of the good news, the bringing of the good news, the, the charisma, the, 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 the news that Jesus is, is, is risen was, was part and parcel brought with care for the poor. This is, this is something new. This, this didn't happen in, in Roman pagan society. It was just kind of like the poor were just there and, you know, and you sometimes treated as worse than slaves. And, 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 and when Christianity came on the scene, there was this, this care for the poor that, that had not been seen uh, before. You history uh, buffs know that, you know, in such institutions like hospices, and hospitals are all Christian inventions. Before Christianity, these things didn't exist. And it really, really can be summed up in Matthew chapter 25, when our Lord is um, giving the, the, the parable of the last judgment. Um, it says in Matthew chapter 25 that uh, in the end, it will be like this. You know, there's going to be uh, goats on the left and sheep on the right and to the right, Jesus is going to say, you know, blessed are you, uh, come into the kingdom because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When Lord, did we see you hungry and gave you food? When do we see you thirsty and give you drink? And the response is anytime you did this to the least of my brethren, you did this to me. Looks on the left. This is, I go into the eternal fire. Uh, because I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. And they're like, when do we not see you hungry or thirsty or imprisoned or naked? When? Jesus said, when you did not do this to one of the least of my brethren, you did not do this to me. This, if you will, is the, is the thread of scripture that runs throughout Catholic social teaching, any social encyclical really can be boiled down to this. And, and anything, even the, the latest social encyclical, um, Laudato Si, which, which speaks about the environment, ultimately has, has to do with, with what this divine mandate is to, to care for Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. And that's a phrase that my community has totally lifted from Mother Teresa, who, who formed her sisters with this, to see Jesus in the poor. 
and to love Jesus in the poor. I even, I mean, I even don't like calling them the poor. Really, they're they're our brothers, they're our sisters. Uh, and to be quite honest, they're going to be like waiting for us in heaven. They're going to be like, yeah, you know, you treated me kind of like you ignored me on earth, but I'm pulling for you, man, because I want you to be in heaven. Like this is like we have to be honest with ourselves and, and recognize that that they have a blessed place that is backed up with scripture. And we are the ones who need to really um, not help them, but see them as as us see them as as part and parcel like our flesh and blood this is like you know if you're my sister like that means something to me not just because i'm mexican uh we totally like protect our families but like that means something you're my sister you need something you call me and to see our brotherhood with all of humanity is significant. And this is part of the revolution of Christianity because mm, you'd be hard pressed to really find uh, another religion that, that boldly puts this from the very beginning as part and parcel with the, the, the uh, evangelization, the, 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 the central message. Okay, so all that, that's some of the, the scriptural background for our social doctrine teaching and, and if somebody wants to like you know have some like maybe uh, a summary of what this is uh, depends on how serious you are <laughs> if you just want to like you know get like the, uh, the 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 basic points i would i would recommend that you look up an encyclical by saint john the 23rd um pacem interis it's pretty short you know to the point you know kind of covers all the bases uh, if you want to like, you know, go deep and like really like roll up your sleeves, I would recommend the Compendium of Social Doctrine of the Catholic Church. It's 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 available online, but it's a series of essays and they're theological essays that really go deep into all these things. So um, there's plenty of available reading. Uh, but but on that note, I wanted to just give you guys just five basic principles on Catholic social teaching that I think can really help us understand uh, how to live our Christian life here today uh, with everything that's going on. And uh, those five are the dignity of the human person, common good, universal destination of goods, subsidiarity, and solidarity. Okay, for those of you who are taking notes, the dignity of the human person, the common good, universal destination of goods, subsidiarity, and solidarity. Okay, deep breath. Ready? Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. God created man in his image and likeness, male and female. He created them. And then he says, go fill the earth and subdue it. So uh, JP2 uh, took this this scripture verse and said, really, this is the beginning of culture. I love it. I love it. When when God gave dominion to man over the earth and and said to cultivate it and and really it's it's a divine responsibility. He says in a couple of places, but definitely in in uh, Liborum Excersens, one of his social social encyclicals, JP two, um, that that this is like the goodness of human labor. This is like the 
goodness that God has given us. It's like, just like God created us in his image and likeness, he's like inviting us to, to humanize the earth, not to exploit the earth, not to completely destroy the earth, because you can be given something that's a gift and mess it up, or you can be given something as a gift and care for it and pass it on. And this, JB2, I think would, would argue, is, is part of the gift that we have been given from our first parents. Um, and uh, this is also indicative of something that's super important, the dignity of every human person. I would argue that most of you, even in, intrinsically, like, you know, you have an intuition. Yes, every person is created equal. Every person is, is, um, is, is beautiful. And, and praise God, and if this is the first time that you're hearing this, well, you know, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, no matter where you're from, no matter what color you are, no matter what class no matter where, where you were born, when you were born, uh, the, by the very fact that you are a human person, has, has, uh, you have a dignity that cannot be taken away, that cannot be robbed from you, that cannot be stolen from you, that um, even though sometimes we demean ourselves, there is no sin where there's no situation in the history of the world on the face of the earth that can completely uh, leave you bereft of your dignity. I don't care how low you might go, you always have this dignity. By extension, this means that each and every single one of us have an obligation to recognize the dignity in each other, not just in myself. This isn't like, you know, some sort of like, you know, vacuum where we just have this eternal mirror, just looking at ourselves is like, I have this dignity. I'm amazing. It's like, no, but if, if we have this dignity, there's a recognition that it has been given. And when, and the, when we receive it, we also recognize that other people have been given this dignity. And, and it's like, it's like, it's like recognizing something beautiful in another person. Um, so I am, I love art. I love, um, uh, you know, seeing this. And, and when I was shown a drawing by this little girl who drew me, <laughs> it's like a stick figure with a habit on and then with her family. And I was like, that is so beautiful. And in a way it's, that's like, I guess God recognizing in us when we recognize the dignity in each other of, of, the, of that beauty. And this is really uh, central. JP2, uh, if you haven't noticed, I'm a big fan of JP2. I've studied uh, his theology upside and down, inside and out. Um, he wrote a letter when he was a professor in Lublin in Poland to another very well-noted theologian, Henri de Lubach, uh, another really dense writer. Um, and, and this is like in the, the 30s. And he said, it seems to me, um, actually, no, I take that back. It, it's, it was, that was a later, um, that was a later letter. He said, it seems to me that any, um, any uh, great threat 
uh, to humanity always attacks the dignity of the human person. And this is what must be so central in defending. Pretty easy to see. Like, you know, you have the Nazis who said that, you know, there's this one superior race and everybody else needs to bow to us and we're going to take over the world. We're going to share, show everyone that we're, we're the best. And we know how that went. And then after that, you had the communists that says, okay, we're all one, you know, and like there's, there's a, you know, there's no heaven, you know, there's, there's no religion, stuff like that. It kind of sounds like a John Lennon song. Anyway, that's another story. Um, and uh, it, it really demeaned our human dignity because part of us being created in the image and likeness of God also means that, that we have a divine right to own things. And this is something that's enshrined in Catholic social teaching from the very beginning. You know, Leo the, Leo the 13th uh, settled this when there was uh, early on some questions of whether, you know, we should just like not own anything. I remember a history professor <laughs> in college saying, it's been proven. He's a crusty uh, Northern Jersey professor, uh, German, you know, descent. It's been proven. The only way communism works is by people who really want to do it. And those are the monks and those are the, and like, here I am, like as a friar, like, well, you know, I wouldn't say that we're communists, <laughs> definitely not, but we do live a common life where we hold goods in common and stuff like that. And that is, that's something that needs to be formed, but we, we do it knowing that we have a right to own. We have a right to, to, uh, to, pass what is owned on. Um, and even if you don't own anything, like most you know, young people and most people who are poor, this is still part of your human dignity. And it's important to say that. Now, um, I, can, I can easily go on, on, on and on in this dignity of the human person, but suffice it to say that we are all, this is something I should say also is, is enshrined even in our Declaration of Independence and, and the, the founding fathers of this country who are not, will never be canonized saints, let's just say that, who had so many flaws, uh, still said, um, you know, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that every person is, is, um, is created equal and endowed by their creator certain inalienable rights. Boom, Shagawaka, you know, so... Um, yeah, Thomas Jefferson wrote that, and you would think that shouldn't he have freed all his slaves if he really believed that? It's like, well, you know, unfortunately, there were, there were also there were men of their times, but it's true what he says, and from that truth, we begin to implement it more and more and create in the image of likeness of God uh, a, a world and a society that is more and more Christian. Um, are we ever going to get there? Uh, let's just be real. Not this side of heaven. But we are meant to try. We are supposed to be building this till the very day that Jesus returns. Uh, so some other uh, principles, and obviously there's more. I'm just going to give you these, these ones real quick. Common good. So if every single person is, uh, has a, a, a dignity endowed by, by God, then this means that we must seek out a common good because I could very easily just make it all about me to the detriment often of someone else. So just a quick example, uh, street lights, traffic lights are there for the sake of the common good. 
Um, maybe it's really uh, obvious to us that there'd be traffic lights, but there was a time when there weren't, and um, and it could be dangerous. Uh, so uh, these lights are placed there, and there's a stop and a go, and everyone kind of like takes their 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 part of of stopping and then knowing when to go for the sake of order, uh, for the sake of safety. If you have ever driven in a country where those lights are not observed, you know that it is terrifying. So this is a bit of confession here. I was uh, driving in Central America, I'm not going to mention the country, and uh, I had to pick somebody up at like two in the morning. And some of the locals said, like, Father, you're going into town at two in the morning. Don't stop at any light. I'm like, are you serious? It's like, I am serious, Father. Do not stop. And I'm like, I hear it from a couple people. I was like, oh, man, okay. All right. You know, I got to trust the locals. So <laughs> so I, every single stoplight I came to, I was just like, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. And I just ran the red lights, um, making sure that nobody was coming because, like, I could be a danger to people. But, like, it was terrifying. It's just like, it's like that's not how God wants us to, to live. Um, and it was terrifying because people were not observing the common good. Um, and, and this, this could be, or I think you can take this, this, uh, example, uh, to, to other places. Um, so, uh, a theological definition, it's the sum total of social conditions, which allow people either as groups or individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and easily. Common good involves all members of society. No one is exempt from cooperating according to each other's possibilities and attaining it and developing it. Okay. So this is why we pay taxes. This is why we belong to a society. This is why, you know, we create a government. And this is why, you know, for the sake of the common good. Uh, because we know that we are better when we work together. Um, and so we have an obligation in our society to, to be citizens of that society for the sake of the common good. Um, if, if we got some, from some philosophy students out there, um, it's not, it's not the same Kantian, uh, Immanuel Kant had an understanding of the common good, um, that is somewhat lacking because he said that like, well, I need to, uh, sacrifice my common good for the sake of the common good, my good for the sake of the common good. So that, you know, even though it's better for me, to have this for the sake of the common good, I'm going to do this. And like, that's actually not the Christian understanding, the Catholic understanding of the common good. It's like, it is in our best interest that I not have all the Twinkies in the world <laughs> for obvious reasons, but like, you know, insert, insert the blank, insert like whatever. It, it's better if um, Amazon not own the entire uh, retail market. It's in the common good. So like, you know, some applications of this uh, is, you know, the, uh, I think they're called the, the Sherman antitrust laws that we have that, you know, would break down monopolies. So like, you know, back in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, Standard Oil had a monopoly over all the oil and gas industries. And the, the U.S. government, you know, separated them into the Exxons, the Mobiles, you know, all these other uh, gas companies that we have now because it was in the best interest of the common good for there not to be a monopoly. And then, then it's kind of funny, like we have a game called Monopoly that's teaching us to do exactly that, 
But uh, what happens when you own all this stuff, you, know, you drive the prices up and the, the purpose of the game monopoly is to bankrupt everybody else. That I would say is not in the common good. Quick story. So we were Franciscans, right? And when I was a novice, we're all learning about poverty, chastity, obedience, you know, serving Jesus and the poor, loving them, learning how to live with all these guys. And we had a free night. It's like, hey, let's play a board game. Sure. We, we saw one like, hey, Monopoly. All these memories of growing up, having fun playing Monopoly with my brothers and sisters. And like, we started playing Monopoly. It was the worst because you have a whole bunch of Franciscans playing Monopoly. Like, mm, that's okay, brother. You don't have to pay rent. I'm like, okay, we're going to be here forever if somebody doesn't get greedy right now. Okay. Can somebody please be greedy? So we just had to stop playing Monopoly. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so the common good. And so um, derivative of the common good is the universal destination of goods, which, which basically means that like the earth, by reason of its fruitfulness and capacity to satisfy human needs, is God's first gift of sustenance for human life. And so the person cannot do without the material goods that correspond to his primary needs and constitute the basic conditions of his existence. Translation, we have a right to have what we need to live, not just survive. So some countries where there's destitution, like they have a right to have what they need to live. Well, you know, maybe they should grow up their, their industry and their economy. Like, well, you know, the universal destination of goods and some of its subtlety would say like, you know, there are conditions that exist that, um, that keeps some countries, some populations, some demographics down. And we need to, um, for the love of Jesus Christ, uh, find ways, good holy ways, to undo those situations of oppression. Um, an example, uh, you know, so the Fran Franciscans began uh, treating lepers. And, you know, the, the Franciscans would go out to these leper colonies. But then the Franciscans started saying, hey, look, you know, like, uh, yeah, we're going to help them, but, but maybe we should open a hospital because they, they need more than just bread. And so the Franciscans opened up some hospitals, which back in the day isn't, you know, like what well, we have hospitals now. But like because of their right to have what they need to live, um, Christians throughout our history have, have uh, come up with good and holy solutions to bring to those in need what they need. Um, so Catholic Relief Services, just to name one example, Caritas, there's there, there's no, um, there's no organization, there's no NGO on the face of the earth that does more to help people than the Catholic Church. And if I'm wrong on that, I want you to show me the data because the organizations associated with the Catholic Church do so much. Not even to mention uh, what the Catholic Church did in this country for many of the immigrant populations coming in, you know, the, the church was an anchor. There was this one society, the San Rafael Society, that would go to Ellis Island and would, would bring these immigrants in as soon as they, they got their, 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 their papers. And they'd say, hey, look, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of wolves around here. Why don't you come over here with me? And we're going we're gonna to hook you up and we're going to get you uh, places because there was a lot of swindlers at the time. And, um, and so this is something, this is a concrete way 
that Catholics live this out in their day. I'm going to talk about this uh, in a, in, as soon as I cover subsidiarity and solidarity. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> Do we need to take a breath? Take a breath. Okay, a little coffee time. Love coffee. Subsidiarity. Um, this is important. Subsidiarity is basically the, um, the principle in Catholic social teaching that says, like, decisions that can be made on the local level should be made on the local level. That's my summary. Uh, any any uh, governance that uh, that that corresponds to a level of, of of government should be done by that by that. In other words, okay, let me let me explain. Um, this principle says that the government should not be deciding what I have for dinner. Just to give you an example. Um, this is why in our country um, you have to have parents sign releases when their kids uh, go through certain classes or, you know, this is this because of subsidiarity, like the parents um, have governance and they are, have decisions to make for their family. And like, if, the, if you guys who know the, the, the book, the famous book, 1984, uh, George Orwell said that there's going to be this big brother that decides everything for us. And a lot of these dystopian novels uh, kind of like have some form of this. There's going to be like some big government that's going to like, you know, decide everything for us. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not even entering into the political milieu here about the, the, uh, the, the back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans want smaller government. Democrats want bigger government. Obviously, it's much more complicated than that. Not even talking about that. I'm just talking about like, like you know, if if the president makes a decision um, for the town I live in, that uh, the this is the day that this road is going to be repaired, then that's not subsidiarity. Um, we need to be making the decisions that correspond to us, and in order to do that, we have to know which decisions correspond to us. And so it's kind of like a a growing up. In, in having ownership of our own lives, having self-possession, very important. I remember when I was um, doing some lobbying at the UN uh, back in the day. Yes, as friars, they, they, we, you, you do a little bit of everything. Uh, I was sat in on this meeting. Uh, we were there. It was, um, it was a number of years ago. It was the Beijing Plus Five conference uh, talking about women. And we were there to present the pro-life position. Um, and uh, it was very intimidating for all these monks to descend upon the UN there in, in Manhattan. And anyway, that's another story for another time. Uh, but I remember I sat in on this meeting and Latin America was going to have a meeting. Uh, I, I think I forget where in the Caribbean um, discussing how these um, what, what the issues for women are going to be in Latin America. And they celebrated that um, and we have great news. I, I don't know what the lady was who was giving this announcement. We have great news. The United States and Canada are going to be uh, sitting members on this committee. And, uh, and this is great for whatever, fraternity or something like that. And I raised my hand. I was like, I don't think that's great. And I got all these looks, like if looks could kill, like daggers from the eyes of some of these women. I said... I think that the Latin American countries 
should be able to talk about what what their reality is um, without um, the, the the North American countries, who you know uh, sometimes are very intimidating uh, for them to kind of talk about. You're not you're not going to say the same things when 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 there's somebody else in the room who's kind of like trying to influence you in a certain way. Oh my gosh, like they wanted to kill me, right? For saying this, but it's based on subsidiarity. Um, they should be able to, these countries should be able to, to, to gather amongst themselves and, and talk about these things uh, as, it, as it fits them. All right, anyway. Um, and then solidarity. Uh, solidarity is our commitment to the welfare of the other. Solidarity, uh, the catechism says, is the most eminent of Christian virtues. Wow, the most eminent of Christian virtues, meaning it's like the most intrinsic. Why? Because Jesus became man and, if you will, established a solid, a radical solidarity with humanity in taking on our nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He, though being rich, became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. And you know, obviously, St. Paul isn't talking about us winning the lottery. Um, or us marrying rich. No, no, it's talking about an eternal richness. I mean, the, get your mind, you can't wrap your mind around the mystery that, that God became man so that we, as some of the saints have said, might become God, not become a God, but become one with God. And this is the ancient Christian uh, doctrine of divinization, but that's another story for another time. Okay. So now with this background, um, let's apply some of these things to what is going on today. So for the sake of the common good, um, there's been many decisions that have been made by um, doctors and governing officials to limit um, what is open, what we should be doing and stuff like that. And uh, it's controversial. And there's questions about what the legality is of some of the things that some of the governors have said. But if we can take a step back and see that it is the, it is, these decisions have been made with the common good in mind. So for the sake of the common good, uh, countries throughout the world have basically had a um, uh, remain at home uh, approach. To, to fighting this novel uh, virus, the coronavirus, the COVID-19. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I'm using this just as a point. This is um, a, a way that the common good is being held in, um, in, in, in the balance. For the sake of the common good, we don't want to completely overwhelm the hospitals and have people die outside the hospitals like has unfortunately happened in some places. Uh, because we can't possibly care for everyone who gets sick because this, this virus is so catchy. Okay, all right. So this is an, an example of living out the common good here today. Maybe somewhat controversial in some places, but nonetheless, it's, this is another way that the common good uh, is, is being uh, observed here. Uh, and, and what's happening now is... Um, uh, with a lot of the racial tensions that is that are that are happening, uh, there are things that are being adopted. There are, are questions that are being pondered 
Um, and these are the principles that we have to bear in mind. For instance, uh, there is uh, the possibility of um, moving funding from police departments into other areas. Okay, whether or not this will happen or not, I don't know. What, whatever your opinion is on this, okay, uh, maybe there's just this visceral reaction, like I think that's absolutely crazy, or maybe there's like a reaction, like yeah, you know, let's 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 break it down. Let's find another way. Whatever it is, the principle of the common good must come into play with whatever we do, because <laughs> if we don't have the common good in mind, what are we doing? Um, and you could argue that police brutality is what needs to be eradicated. Amen. Amen. But if this happens at the cost of the common good, this is why we have principles. Uh, this is why we need to keep these things in mind. Obviously, police brutality goes against the dignity of every human person. Um, and, uh, and can I just say, I know a lot of cops. And as a priest, if there's any, if there's any policeman, any law enforcement, any, any, um, any sort of, of, of a law enforcement official, um, as a priest, I know what it's like to be blackballed because of what a few of your number have done. I know, but all the more reason why you as your law enforcement brothers uh, need to come together to, to, um, to work on that not being a reality anymore uh, because police brutality obviously is wrong. Brutality by anybody is wrong. Um, and so this is, these are the things that we need to, to combat armed with uh, solid, solid uh, principles based on, on the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, okay, there are some uh, problems that have been raised, namely racism. So I think, it, I think it's important to, to define what racism is. And this is just, you know, a regular Google search. Uh, racism is the prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalized. Okay, so when when you look at when there's some sort of discrimination, prejudice, or antagonism, just because of where you're from or where your people are from, or you know if you're a small group or a marginalized group. This, my brothers and sisters, is wrong. And I, I think that we have seen uh, in these last few months in our country, uh, some of these things explode. And I understand it's controversial. Some people say that, you know, well, that's not racism. What happened? That was murder. This is all this. But, but I think that what we have to recognize is that there's a certain experience by um, by various minority groups, by various uh, ethnic groups, by various races, that that they are all expressing in common, that um, goes against the dignity of every human person. Their dignity is not being respected or observed. And I would hope that everybody on this uh, on this 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 life 
can recognize that that's wrong. Now the question is, what do you do to remedy it? Very good question. There are some who say, well, we can't, we already tried the system. There's some who say, you know what, what we need to do is we need to just break it all down because it's very clear that this isn't happening, that, that we, we, we've tried, but, but the white people still own everything and they're not going to give up their power. So we need to do something else. There's some who say that that's how the changes that need to happen are going to happen. There's others who say, no, the system works, it's flawed, but it works. What we need to do is register to vote and, and, uh, and, and be a part of that change. Uh, what we need to do is, you know, be more responsible amongst ourselves. You know, the, the structure of family life needs to be built up. You know, we, we need to look at there's, there's people that are saying this, there's people that are saying that, and there's a lot of questions, especially because a lot of our young people feel like the church isn't saying anything. And so uh, they are listening to people who are saying something. And I, uh, if I can make some distinctions here, um, the, the umbrella term for those who uh, feel like we can't, uh, that we need a revolution, in other words, that, that the system will not work, the system will fail us, uh, the umbrella term is, is critical race theory. And we, we can go into this a little bit more, but I'm going to go into some of its origins. Um, it, critical race theory is the view that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist. And that race itself, instead of being a biologically grounded and natural, is socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interest at the expense of people of color. Translation, it's not gonna work for a black man. It's not gonna work for a brown man because the system is set up to just keep us down. Now, if I can give you some background of my life, um, I'm a convert. Um, I'm a convert because my, my parents uh, grew up Catholic and they left the Catholic church and they became avowed socialists. And so when I was born, I was born a cradle atheist. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was only baptized when I was a teenager, when my mom had a reversion. Anyway, long story short, I remember growing up hearing this. And I remember um, in the eighties, eighties baby, uh, hearing about some of the conflicts that were going on at the times, particularly in Nicaragua, and the righteousness of the struggle uh, against the men. Um, and uh, this is something that's not new. In fact, this goes all the way back to, to the freedom fighters of the day. You know, uh, the, the, the question ultimately is, um, can change occur in the society, the way society is set up now. Critical race theory, it has its origins in uh, uh, the the big, big philosophical term here, the dialectical materialism. Uh, this, this, in, ultimately Marxist or Hegelian dialectic 
which which uh, means that you know you're questioning what's happening, and you're in by questioning what's happening, you're really kind of like breaking it down, so that uh, in the name of science, as Marx said, Marx said this is in the name of historical science. Hegel uh, uh, said in the name of of reason, um, but ultimately, what's happening is that where what thing what something is 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 broken down and it becomes something else. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially if what's happening is wrong. But what principles are in, are put in place could could leave you either either better or worse, depending on what happens. So. If I see that something is wrong, um, uh, somebody is stealing ice cream, and the the way that I change it is I either um, put everybody on the in military state, martial law, you know, curfew, uh, because some people are stealing ice cream, and so everybody needs to, um, you know, show their papers at every single corner and stuff like that. That's one way of solving the problem. Or um, I can, you know. Educate, issue laws, uh, police uh, the places where ice cream is being stolen, um, and uh, and you know find the perpetrators, uh, and and you know so there's there's a couple of ways of doing it, uh, or a Christian way, a Catholic way is to is to give ice cream away for free, <laughs> um, or no that's not necessarily a solution. Although uh, although you know I would argue that you know what we're trying to do in the CFRs. So, you know, we live in areas that are noted for poverty, but um, we really try to help the people before they would even think of stealing the ice cream for the sake of conversation. Okay, so um, what has been the history of change in, in, the, in the Catholic Church? I would argue that the, um, the way that Christianity has changed society has been to work within the system, whatever that system is. Um, the Christianity, uh, by its very nature, uh, even scripture, uh, read the letter to Philemon, has been against slavery, but has worked through a society until slavery can be fully abolished. There's been some criticism of Christianity for not coming out against slavery from the get-go, like full-on, okay? Um, but it ha- there, there has been, uh, through the, the nature of Christianity, you know, the slaves and owners were treated as equals in Christian communities. That's unheard of, completely unheard of. But until the, the point in time where, where society can grow in its understanding and and, and outlaw and, and make legal some of these things that has only really happened in the last couple hundred years, uh, surprisingly. Uh, but, but Christianity, read um, the letter to Diognetus. Uh, this is like the method of Christianity to live in society than to be the best citizens and to like, you know, almost like yeast affects the entire dough, be the leaven of society, be the salt um, be the light. This is how Christianity has has attempted to go. So that's not to say that Catholic social doctrine doesn't have teaching on revolution. In fact, um, it might surprise somebody, but like we are not pacifists. 
if we define pacifism as never engaging in violence or in war. No, there are situations and circumstances where, where Christians should go to war. We have this just war theory, which you can definitely look up. It's all in the catechism. Um, and so this, by, by using these principles, there's also a situation where, where you are justified in revolution. But it's very clear of what a definition of a tyrant is in Catholic social doctrine. Um, so, so inform yourself. Um, but let me just suffice it to say that we still live in a world, in a society, in this country, in the United States, where those, those criteria have not been met. Um, no matter what your opinion is of, of the president, um, he does not fit the Catholic social doctrine um, criteria of a tyrant. You know, far from it, because he, think about it, he says things that you either agree or disagree with, but he can only do what the law allows him to. This is a definition of a society that still functions um, and that there's still uh, hope for uh, enacting real, good, and holy change. So that said, um, this critical race theory, even though there's a lot of people who who feel that way, uh, I can't see how they would be uh, justified in, and I've heard this, I've heard people say this, to burn it all down and from the ashes bring up a new society. And this might be because I work with college students <laughs> a lot, uh, that the, um, the, the idealism of youth might, might lead us to very, very radical beliefs in certain parts, certain periods of our life. Um, but, um, but from the perspective of Catholic social teaching, I don't think that that is a viable path. And so how do we confront this, perhaps with people that we know that are for this? Like, well, I think we inform them uh, about how, um, how we can still do things with the way things are set up. Um, and you might, you might not convince them, but be patient. Because I know I used to have some really radical thoughts about the world and society and stuff, and experience has a way of of um, of purifying some of those things. And the Catholic social teaching just like uh, continues to shine through. And you're like, wow, there's some real truth to all this. I can't believe how much he was able to pack into one hour. What a gift, truly. Yeah, thank God for him. Well done. Thank you, Father Augustino. If you're interested in the Q&A, which I know I am, mm -hmm. we're going to share that in a part two next week. So stay tuned. We love you. Love you.